In the annals of human history, the colonization of Proxima 7 marked a watershed moment, a veritable leap into a future where the confines of one planet could no longer contain humanity's ambition or needs. This distant orb was not just another celestial body in the vast tapestry of space. It was a lifeline, a new beginning, an embodiment of mankind's indomitable spirit to explore and conquer. Fittingly, Proxima 7 was both familiar and alien, its sprawling landscapes reminiscent of Earth's varied geographies, yet bizarrely twisted by the quirks of extraterrestrial evolution. The settlers who landed on this new frontier were a carefully selected group, each a paragon in their respective fields. Scientists of every stripe, from biologists and geologists to physicists and chemists, rubbed shoulders with architects, engineers, farmers, and even artists. These men and women were united by a common trait, an unyielding resilience. Psychological assessments had ensured that they were people of sturdy mental frameworks, capable of enduring isolation, homesickness, and the innumerable unknown challenges of setting up civilization from scratch. Proxima 7 offered its own wonders and mysteries to these modern pioneers. Alien flora with leaves that shimmered like metal, fauna resembling Earth's animals but with extra limbs or asymmetric bodies, rivers that flowed with a viscosity unlike water, and skies that turned astonishing shades during sunrises and sunsets. These oddities were catalogued, studied, and slowly understood, becoming a part of the settlers' new normal. Yet, for all the planet's inviting strangeness, one enigma eluded explanation, a singular mountain situated at the planet's northern pole. Unlike the rest of Proxima landscapes, this mountain was cloaked in an electromagnetic haze that defied all attempts at scrutiny. Satellite imagery broke down when aimed at it, sensors went haywire, and drones sent in its direction malfunctioned or disappeared without a trace. The mountain became an object of both scientific curiosity and cultural mythology, standing as a silent guardian of the planet's untold secrets. While the settlers thrived and expanded their habitat, forging a society that balanced technological progress with ecological harmony, this looming sentinel at the pole remained untouched, undisturbed, and enigmatic. The curiosity it evoked was universal, but it was a passive background to the immediate, daily challenges of colonization. As the years passed, a sense of stability and even routine settled over Proxima 7. But under the surface, the collective subconscious of the settlement harbored an unspoken, insatiable curiosity about that unreachable peak. And as if responding to this latent yearning, a strange anomaly began to manifest, an untraceable, haunting echo embedded in all audio communications across the colony. Little did the settlers know that this faint reverberation would soon trigger a series of events that would challenge the very core of their existence, revealing unsettling truths about their new home and themselves. Life on Proxima 7 had fallen into a pattern of industrious predictability, a routine that spanned the ever-expanding habitats, research labs, and hydroponic farms. Communication systems were a lifeline in this distributed existence, the oral threads connecting the scattered outposts of humanity across sprawling alien landscapes. Digital frequencies conveyed everything, coordination between scientific teams in the field, emergency alerts, personal messages between families and friends, and the mundane chatter that sustains a community. It was in this intricate web of voices and sounds that the first whispers of something abnormal emerged. Radio operators, those unsung gatekeepers of the airwaves, noticed it first, an unexplained reverberation in the audio channels. At the outset, it was so faint that it could be mistaken for a glitch or a random noise artifact, something to be written off as a curiosity or a minor technical hiccup. But once perceived, it was impossible to ignore. Unlike static or feedback, this echo had a strangely musical quality, hauntingly ethereal. It evoked an inexplicable sense of depth, as if emanating from some far-off place, yet always immediately present. For those who listened closely, it seemed almost like a pattern or a language, distorted and stretched across the barriers of comprehension. It was not just a repetition of the original sounds but an echo with variation, 
as though it were a response or a call of its own. Teams of engineers and scientists threw themselves into the puzzle. Spectrum analyzers, sound engineers with their state-of-the-art software, cryptographers, and even neuroscientists were consulted. They dissected the audio, isolating frequencies, reconstructing waveforms, and running myriad tests. Despite their rigorous methodologies and advanced technologies, they reached no conclusion, found no source, and could identify no pattern. Satellites and drones scanned the planet's surface and atmospheric conditions for any anomaly that could explain this auditory phenomenon, all in vain. The community began to discuss the phenomenon openly, elevating it from an obscure technical challenge to a subject of common interest. Online forums, social gatherings, even educational seminars started focusing on the echo, as it had been dubbed. Speculative theories flourished. Some suggested it was a form of natural radio wave reflection from the planet's unique geology, while others fancied the idea of it being an encoded message from an advanced, unknown civilization. A few even made the connection to the enigmatic mountain at the pole, hypothesizing that the source might be related to the one place that had resisted all attempts at exploration. As the collective attention veered towards this mysterious echo, it was clear that what began as a technical conundrum had transcended into something far more penetrating. Unbeknownst to them, the settlers had reached a point of no return. The echo was no longer just a sound in their ears, it had started to resonate in the corridors of their minds, instigating a silent transformation that none could have foreseen. In a society starved for novelty, the echo became a cultural phenomenon almost overnight. The colony's artists were the first to incorporate the mysterious reverberation into their works. Musicians sampled it in their compositions, creating new genres of music that layered the eerie echo over traditional instruments and digital synths. Sculptors claimed that the echo influenced the lines and contours of their pieces, evoking forms that straddled the line between abstraction and eerie realism. Even chefs began to describe their latest culinary experiments as inspired by the auditory flavors of the echo, though no one could quite articulate what that meant. However, the most captivating manifestation of the echo's influence was in the realm of language and communication. Radio operators, perhaps out of a blend of boredom and fascination, were the first to mimic the mysterious sound. They would add it to the tail end of their transmissions or overlay it on standard phrases. A subtle background echo became a mark of artistry, a way to imbue otherwise routine exchanges with a dose of otherworldliness. Software engineers, always eager for a challenge, developed algorithms to mimic the echo more accurately. Before long, an open-source project released an audio filter that could add the mysterious reverberation to any piece of audio in real-time. It became a sensation, people started using it in personal communications, conversations tinged with the echo were said to be more nuanced or emotionally resonant, though nobody could precisely define why. Social currency began to accrue around one's ability to emulate or incorporate the echo. Children practiced its unique cadence, competing to produce the most accurate imitation. Teachers, initially wary, started using the echo-enhanced audio filters during educational transmissions, as students claimed it made the subject matter more engaging. Even politicians adopted the echo in public addresses, aiming to appear in tune with the zeitgeist. The echo had insinuated itself into the very syntax of the settlers' daily lives. It was a trend, a fad, a style, yet also more than that. The act of imitation slowly evolved from conscious choice to unconscious habit. The echo was no longer an external oddity, it was internalized, a linguistic reflex deeply integrated into social interaction. Amidst this societal absorption, the scientific community continued its attempts to decode the echo's origins. Still, no consensus could be reached, and the experts reluctantly conceded that their research had stalled. As days turned into weeks, the mimicry of the echo became so commonplace that people hardly questioned it anymore. It had become part of the colony's evolving identity, a characteristic as unique to Proxima 7 as its alien flora and metallic rivers. 
But as the echo pervaded the social fabric, something less obvious began to change. Relationships started showing strains, misunderstandings became more frequent, and a general sense of discontent bubbled under the surface. A vague, collective restlessness settled over the community like a fog, the source of which was as elusive as the echo itself. Unbeknownst to the settlers, the act of imitation had initiated a sequence of alterations, not just in their speech, but in the very wiring of their thoughts and emotions. The first ripples of a seismic shift were beginning to emanate through the colony, yet its full force was still to come. The subtle alteration in community dynamics became more pronounced as time went on. It began with a subtle increase in minor disagreements and misunderstandings, often escalating into disputes that seemed out of proportion to their initial causes. These episodes weren't limited to any specific group or demographic. They were happening between lifelong partners, close friends, respected colleagues, and even among the colony's children. Soon, this behavioral shift extended to the professional domains. Research teams became unusually competitive, secretive, and less collaborative. Agricultural planners quarreled over resource allocation, and engineers who were once the epitome of teamwork started working in isolation. Even medical staff noticed an increase in stress-related health issues among the settlers. Insomnia, elevated blood pressure, and anxiety became common complaints. Meanwhile, a new pattern was emerging. People started to gravitate towards the outdoors, spending more time exploring the farther reaches of Proxima 7. Hiking, once a leisure activity, became an obsession for many. The trips grew increasingly ambitious, targeting more distant and isolated locations. Curiously, many of these explorations seemed to be taking settlers in a northerly direction, towards the unexplored territories that surrounded the enigmatic mountain at the planet's pole. For those watching from a distance, it became evident that the community's fascination was slowly turning into a fixation. Drone footage revealed makeshift camps and markers appearing at increasingly higher latitudes. Unauthorized expeditions were organized, bypassing official protocols and safety measures. No one could explain what was driving this collective urge to move closer to the enigmatic mountain, but the pull was undeniable. Social scientists and psychologists tried to make sense of these changes. Could it be a form of collective cabin fever? a psychological response to years of living in a controlled, predictable environment. Or perhaps a delayed reaction to the initial stresses of colonization, finally manifesting after years of suppressed tension. The theories were as numerous as they were inconclusive. While the community was fracturing, its artistic expression turned darker. Music that once celebrated the wonder and promise of life on a new world now had a melancholic, often dissonant tone. Paintings and sculptures depicted abstract forms that unsettled viewers, evoking both fascination and discomfort. Even children's drawings started to feature recurring themes of darkness, isolation, and mysterious shapes that resembled the mountain at the pole. The echo itself had changed, or perhaps it was the settler's perception that had evolved. What was once a hauntingly beautiful reverberation now sounded more urgent, insistent, almost aggressive. It had fully interwoven itself with the colonists' linguistic habits, but its tone was no longer an enchanting mystery. It had become a disquieting presence. As the cracks in the societal structure widened, the governing council decided to intervene. They banned the use of echo-enhanced communications in official channels, citing concerns for public safety and mental well-being. The move was unpopular and led to protests, but the order remained in place. What no one realized was that the echo had already served its purpose. Its reverberations had set something in motion, altering not just the settlers' behavior but something deep within their neurochemistry. And all the while, the mountain at the pole stood unmoving, its electromagnetic haze as impenetrable as ever, as if waiting for the inevitable. The ban on echo-enhanced communications only seemed to heighten the settlers' growing obsession with the mountain at the pole. Conversations shifted, scientific debates grew more animated, and online forums buzzed with the fervor of a population on the brink of a revelation. The mountain, 
once a remote enigma, was now perceived as an attainable frontier, a physical challenge begging to be conquered. Unofficial treks towards the polar regions became an open secret. The governing council found it increasingly difficult to enforce its rules and keep people from venturing into uncharted territories. Expeditions were undertaken with near-religious zeal, each group convinced that they would be the ones to unlock the mountain's secrets. Families, social circles, even research teams started to splinter as individual members chose sides, either to join the dangerous journey to the pole or to stay back, compelled by a mix of caution, skepticism, and fear. Meanwhile, the engineers and scientists who had once tried to analyze the echo were among those most entranced by the northern fascination. Their labs and workshops repurposed, they now feverishly designed equipment for polar expeditions, all-terrain vehicles that could navigate the icy landscapes, powerful drills capable of breaking through the thickest layers of rock and ice, and high-frequency transmitters to penetrate the electromagnetic haze surrounding the mountain. The settlers' behavior started to change in more insidious ways, too. A heightened aggression became palpable. Minor infractions in the community were met with extreme reactions. Verbal arguments escalated into physical confrontations at an alarming rate. Medical centers began to fill with cases of assault and injuries that were difficult to explain as mere accidents. Simultaneously, incidents of self-harm rose, particularly among those who had vocally opposed the obsessive treks to the pole. It was not lost on anyone that the epicenter of all these changes was the enigmatic mountain itself. Satellite imagery, despite its limitations imposed by the electromagnetic haze, showed multiple paths etched into the snow and ice leading towards it. These trails, evidence of numerous failed and successful expeditions, seemed to emanate like spokes from the mountain, as if it were a hub drawing everything towards it. Scientists who stayed behind to observe began to note alarming environmental shifts. Local flora appeared to be mutating at an accelerated rate, growing thorns and manifesting unusual colorations. Fauna displayed increased hostility, leading to a surge in attacks on humans and each other. Even the weather seemed to grow more extreme, as if the planet itself was entering a state of unrest. Amidst the growing chaos, some individuals tried to resist the allure of the pole. These were the settlers who questioned, who doubted, who feared what lay ahead. Yet their resistance only seemed to isolate them further, marking them as outliers in a society rapidly spiraling towards a singular, magnetic focus. There was no turning back. Like filings to a magnet, like rivers to an ocean, like planets to a sun, the settlers felt themselves inexorably pulled towards the mountain at the pole. What had begun as an unexplained echo in their communications had now become a silent scream in their minds, urging them to unravel the enigma that had watched over them since their arrival on Proxima 7. And so, they prepared to heed its call, unable to grasp the magnitude of the revelation that awaited them. The colony's societal structures were on the brink of collapse. The governing council, once a bedrock of stability, had disintegrated into warring factions, each advocating for different courses of action, some calling for military intervention to halt the unauthorized expeditions, others arguing to let the settlers follow their newfound obsession to its inevitable conclusion. All semblance of law and order was deteriorating rapidly, making room for anarchy. Manufacturing facilities that once produced essentials for everyday life had pivoted entirely to supporting the expeditions. Drones, which were initially used for agricultural and maintenance tasks, were now reprogrammed for surveillance and reconnaissance in the polar regions. Even the botanical gardens, the colony's pride and joy, lay abandoned and overgrown, a testament to the colony's shifting priorities. The collective fixation had taken a darker turn. Accounts started pouring in about missing persons, settlers who had ventured alone into the wilderness and never returned. Search parties were dispatched, but they often came back empty-handed or, worse, lost members themselves. Still, the expeditions continued, each group armed with increasingly advanced equipment and fortified by an unwavering, some would say irrational, resolve. The media channels that once offered news, entertainment, 
and educational content were now filled with amateur documentaries about the polar mountain, speculative analyses, and increasingly bizarre pseudo-scientific theories. Gone were the days of cultural programs and artistic shows, the echo had pervaded not just their communication but the very concept of meaningful content. Medical facilities were overwhelmed, but not with physical injuries, rather, a sweeping emotional and psychological malaise had settled over the populace. Therapists reported a strange uniformity in the emotional distress plaguing the settlers, an unquenchable thirst for something undefined and distant, accompanied by a seething frustration and a smattering of existential dread. Even newborns, it seemed, were not immune. Maternity wards were filled with the cries of infants who appeared unusually restless, as if inheriting a world they found unsatisfactory right from the start. The art and literature that emerged during this period were haunting. They portrayed a civilization unmoored, spiraling into an abyss yet paradoxically hopeful about the plunge. Whether through aggressive brushstrokes on canvas, dissonant chords in music, or nihilistic verses in poetry, the tone was unmistakably one of dark fascination. Despite these ominous signs, the mountain continued to beckon. Those who had been on expeditions and returned spoke of transformative experiences, of an inexplicable sense of purpose that washed over them as they approached the pole. These accounts were shared widely, fueling the imaginations and aspirations of those who listened. Those who heard felt a renewed urgency to embark on their own pilgrimages, as if fearing they might miss out on something monumental. The expeditions grew bolder, fueled by technological innovations and the unspoken competition to be the first to unlock the mountain's secrets. The landscape around the polar region started to change as well, almost as if reacting to the human presence. The icy terrain seemed less solid, more treacherous, as if challenging the intruders. Yet, no natural obstacle could deter the settlers now, they were willing to risk it all. The community had reached a tipping point, teetering on the edge of collective madness or enlightenment, no one could tell which. All eyes, minds, and hearts were set on the mysterious mountain that had towered silently over their new world, its apex shrouded in a mist that was as much metaphysical as it was physical. A mass exodus was imminent, a journey fueled by a shared compulsion that defied reason yet felt as urgent as the need to breathe. Amidst the chaos, a small group of dissenters emerged, mostly composed of settlers who had been skeptical from the start. They began to assemble in secret, trading theories and sharing concerns. Recognizing the irreversible trajectory their society was on, they hatched a desperate plan. It was a long shot, but it was the only option they felt they had left, to reach the mountain before anyone else and find a way to break its hold on the people. And so, laden with a mix of scientific equipment and rudimentary weapons, the group set out towards the pole, racing against time and their own unraveling society to preempt whatever catastrophe, or revelation, awaited them. In the heart of the colony, the governing council convened for one last, decisive meeting. The chamber, once a symbol of unity and shared ideals, now felt like a battleground. Each council member was flanked by supporters, creating a stark visual representation of a community divided. Administrative aides, security personnel, and technicians avoided eye contact, sensing the heaviness of the moment. The decision at hand was monumental. Should they officially sanction a large-scale expedition to the pole, thereby legitimizing what had already become a societal obsession? Or should they lock down the colony, enforce strict martial law, and attempt to reverse the unraveling of their social fabric? Arguments were presented, data analyzed, and moral and ethical considerations weighed. Every council member felt the gravity of their role, their upcoming vote not just a policy decision but a shaping of the colony's very destiny. At stake were not just logistical or safety concerns, it was as if they were deliberating the collective soul of their community. A vote was finally called, and the tension in the room escalated to an almost unbearable level. Hands were raised, votes counted, and a pregnant pause filled the chamber before the result was announced. The decision was made. They would officially organize an expedition to the mysterious mountain at the pole. 
but this would be no ordinary expedition. Given the heightened state of the community, the council agreed on extraordinary measures. It was decided that the expedition would be composed of volunteers but led by a multidisciplinary team of experts, geologists, biologists, psychologists, and even philosophers. The objective was twofold, to explore and demystify the polar mountain, and to document the psychological and emotional states of the participants. They aimed to either solve the riddle that had gripped them all or provide empirical evidence to dissuade further reckless pursuits. As news of the decision spread throughout the colony, the atmosphere was electric. For proponents of the expedition, it was a moment of vindication, a social and institutional recognition of what they felt so deeply. For the skeptics, it was a betrayal, a formalization of madness that marked the point of no return. But for the silent few who had already embarked on their own desperate journey to the mountain, it was a race against time, one that they couldn't afford to lose. The sanctioned expedition was fast-tracked, with resources diverted to ensure that it would depart within days. Selecting volunteers proved unnecessary. Applications poured in, with settlers volunteering in droves, many penning emotional statements about why they felt compelled to go. From these, a select group was chosen, vetted for both physical stamina and mental resilience. They underwent rigorous training sessions, courses on survival, and psychological assessments. The colony's best technology was employed, creating a fleet of vehicles and equipment that represented the pinnacle of their achievements on Proxima 7. Amid the frenzied preparations, archival teams worked to back up all of the colony's knowledge, from scientific data to cultural artifacts. This information was to be stored in multiple formats and locations, both on Proxima 7 and on satellites in orbit. It was a safeguard against the unknown, a legacy that would endure whatever the outcome of the looming journey. As the expedition's departure drew near, the settlers who were staying behind gathered for a massive send-off event. It was a spectacle filled with both euphoria and apprehension, like a festival on the eve of an apocalypse. And in that paradoxical moment, the colony stood more united than it had been for months, bound together by a hope and a dread that were two sides of the same coin. The sanctioned expedition set forth, disappearing into the horizon, trailed by a cloud of unanswered questions. Those left behind watched until the convoy was reduced to mere specks, swallowed by the vast, alien landscape. Then they returned to their lives, such as they were, a mix of anticipation and foreboding hanging heavy in the air. As the first vehicle in the convoy crested a hill, the polar mountain came into view in the distance, its peak veiled in perpetual mist. The sight sent a shiver down the spines of even the most skeptical among them. It was a symbol, a mystery, and a destination, all rolled into one. And as they pressed on, every member of the expedition felt the invisible threads of their society's past, present, and future converging on that singular, inscrutable point. The sanctioned expedition reached the foothills of the Polar Mountain after a grueling journey fraught with technical issues and inexplicable equipment failures. A base camp was set up, fortified by the most advanced technology the colony had developed, energy shields to protect against wild fauna, anti-gravitational modules to assist in cargo transport, and autonomous drones to document every moment. The air was thick with a sense of impending destiny. At the same time, the renegade group of dissenters, who had set out ahead of the official mission, found themselves in a perilous situation. They had arrived at the mountain but were ill-equipped to deal with the increasingly hostile environment. Their technology was makeshift, cobbled together from remnants and spare parts. The planet seemed to be resisting their presence, with intense blizzards and terrain that changed in treacherous, unpredictable ways. The sanctioned expedition commenced its ascent, each step carefully planned and executed. The team of experts led the way, followed by volunteers equipped with advanced probing and sampling tools. Their aim was to understand the mountain's geology, its ecology, and perhaps its metaphysics. Drones flew overhead, capturing multi-dimensional data for future analysis. As they climbed, the environment defied logic and reason. 
flora with bioluminescent properties illuminated their path in an eerie glow, while fauna with previously unseen anatomical structures darted in and out of view, as if watching them. More unsettling were the sounds, a cacophony of groans, whistles, and hums that seemed to emanate from the mountain itself. All the while, the echo was there, but it had evolved. It was now a complex, multi-layered resonance that defied analysis. Then, disaster struck. A sudden, violent storm swept in, catching the official expedition off guard. Winds howled like tortured spirits, and temperatures plummeted. Visibility dropped to near zero, making navigation impossible. Communications were severely disrupted, reduced to static and garbled transmissions. Panicked, the expedition members found themselves separated, disoriented, and increasingly vulnerable. Unknown to them, the dissenters experienced a simultaneous crisis. Their crude encampment was ravaged by the same storm, their supplies scattered, and their morale shattered. Now desperately low on resources and weakened by the hostile elements, they faced a grim choice, proceed with the near-suicidal mission or turn back and face the uncertain fate that awaited them in the colony. Both groups, isolated by the tempest and confronted by their vulnerabilities, descended into internal chaos. Accusations flew, alliances were shattered, and a sense of collective despair took hold. Some members of the sanctioned expedition began to sabotage the mission, either driven mad by the echo or acting on a nihilistic realization of their own inconsequence. Among the dissenters, bitter divisions arose, questioning the validity of their mission and the ethics of their defiance. As the storm raged on, both expeditions faced a breaking point. For the official team, it was when their lead geologist, the cornerstone of their scientific efforts, was found lifeless, seemingly consumed by a form of rapidly growing, invasive flora. For the dissenters, it was when they lost their last functional communication device, severing their final link to the colony and to each other. In these bleak moments, both groups stood on the edge of oblivion, peering into the abyss. And from that abyss, the mountains seemed to peer back, indifferent to their hopes, their fears, and their impending doom. It was as if the planet itself was urging them to turn back, to abandon their quest for answers in the face of unfathomable complexity and danger. But despite the turmoil, despite the losses and the looming sense of catastrophe, the mountain remained the singular point of convergence for all their paths. It stood there, veiled in mystery and mist, as both a challenge and a rebuke, pulling them with a gravitational force that transcended logic. And so, against all odds, the remnants of both expeditions made the fateful decision to continue their ascent. Abandoning their base camps and casting aside their differences, they moved upwards, each individual compelled by a mix of desperation and grim determination. They climbed, not knowing that their actions would soon lead to a reality-shattering revelation, forever changing the course of human history on Proxima 7. The remnants of the sanctioned expedition and the band of dissenters continued their respective ascents, their tracks occasionally crossing but never intertwining, like parallel lifelines on the palm of a cosmic hand. Unbeknownst to each other, both groups were haunted by the same echo, now an unsettling chorus of harmonic frequencies that seemed to emerge from the depths of the planet itself. The official team pushed forward, now shedding their original roles and disciplines. The biologists became survivalists, the philosophers turned into tacticians, and the psychologists morphed into chroniclers of human despair. As they climbed, they encountered phenomena that defied categorization, rock formations that pulsed like living tissue, streams of liquid with shifting colors and properties, and air pockets where the laws of physics seemed momentarily suspended. Meanwhile, the dissenters adapted in their own way, becoming less a group and more a loosely connected network of loners. They too found that the mountain defied their expectations. Each day, it seemed to present them with an enigma, as if testing their resolve, puzzles of geometry and light that had to be navigated, gravitational anomalies that could only be crossed with improvised ingenuity, and invisible barriers that seemed to repel them psychologically as well as physically. Both parties started to experience synchronicities that were too frequent to be mere coincidences.
equipment would malfunction at key moments, but sometimes spontaneously repair itself. Rations ran out, only to be inexplicably replenished. Team members would have identical dreams, waking up with shared visions or insights about the path ahead. Some began to document these occurrences, while others whispered that the mountain itself was interacting with them, though whether it was a guardian or a manipulator remained an open question. Amid the strangeness, moments of indescribable beauty and terror were had. One day, the sanctioned expedition arrived at a plateau covered in translucent flowers that emitted light in patterns akin to coded language. Another time, they witnessed a night sky unlike any they had ever seen, with celestial formations that seemed to tell an ancient, cosmic story. The dissenters, too, had their share of awe and wonder. They stumbled upon caves with walls that acted like mirrors, reflecting not just light but seemingly their inner thoughts and fears. However, both groups also encountered unfathomable horrors. Members were lost to unexplainable phenomena, swallowed by sudden sinkholes, consumed by predatory vegetation, or disappearing into thin air, leaving only an empty set of clothes. Others seemed to change, their personalities morphing into something unrecognizable, as if the Echo had rewritten their identities. A few even turned violently against their comrades, as if possessed by an alien malevolence. And still, they climbed. They climbed because turning back was no longer an option, morally or existentially. They climbed because the echo, for all its strangeness and menace, had become the sound of their own inner voids, and confronting it was akin to confronting themselves. They climbed because the mountain had become an archetype, a sacred and profane altar where all their human contradictions could be offered up for cosmic judgment. As both expeditions neared the summit, their remaining members no longer resembled the hopeful settlers who had first landed on Proxima 7. They were now pilgrims in an alien cathedral, each step a prayer, each breath a hymn. And looming above them, veiled in eternal mist and mystery, was the summit, the axis mundi of their collective ordeal. They were close now, so very close, to the place where answers, or perhaps only more questions, awaited them. And as they moved, it seemed as though the planet itself held its breath, waiting to reveal its final, most devastating secret. The members of both groups, transformed now into ragged ascetics rather than explorers or rebels, reached the threshold of the summit almost simultaneously, though each remained unaware of the other's presence. Here, the mountain plateaued into a stark, flat expanse, surrounded by swirling mists like a fortress guarded by spectral sentinels. The sanctioned expedition arrived with their scientific instruments rendered largely useless, their drones long since lost to the elements. They set their feet on the summit and felt a wave of emotion sweep over them, relief, dread, awe, and a solemnity reserved for the most sacred or final of moments. But the echo did not cease. It intensified, reverberating through them like an unearthly choir singing a hymn of eons. On the other side of the summit, the dissenters set up what remained of their makeshift equipment, a humble contrast to the high-tech gear they'd left behind at the colony. They looked at each other with a shared understanding. Whatever awaited them here was beyond the scope of their rebellion, their grievances, or their personal hopes. The echo here was a siren song, a call to something primal and inarticulate, a hunger in the soul that defied reason. In the center of the summit stood a monolith, jutting out from the ground like an extraterrestrial obelisk. It was not made of stone or metal, but some unknown material that seemed to shift and pulse, as if alive. As they approached, members of each group felt their thoughts blur and their wills merge into a collective stream of consciousness. It was as though the monolith was a conduit, a terminal where different timelines and dimensions intersected. The sanction team reached out to touch it first. As they did, their minds were flooded with images, sounds, equations, and languages that defied description or comprehension. Snapshots of cosmic events, civilizations rising and falling, planets being born and dying, filled their minds. But it wasn't just a deluge of information, it was a fusion, a synthesis of all they were and all they could be. For a moment, they became one with the universe, 
a fleeting but eternal instant where they were both particle and wave, individual and collective, end and beginning. The dissenters touched the monolith next. The flood they received was less cosmic and more intimate, like a mirror held up to their deepest selves. Their past mistakes, future potentials, lost loves, and unspoken fears swirled in a dance of shadows and light. The echo transformed into a harmonious melody, and in that harmony, they found a sense of unity and forgiveness, not just for each other but for themselves. As both groups recoiled from the monolith, they finally became aware of each other's presence. In that moment, all past differences seemed trivial, all conflicts rendered moot. They looked at each other across the flat expanse, their eyes meeting in mutual recognition of the monumental experience they had just shared. No words were needed, the echo had spoken for them. But then, something shifted. The monolith began to glow, its pulsating rhythm quickening. The echo rose to a piercing frequency, and both groups felt a sudden, overwhelming urge to retreat. As they backed away, the monolith seemed to fold inward, collapsing into itself before vanishing in a burst of light so intense it left them momentarily blinded. When they regained their sight, the monolith was gone, and the echo had ceased. In its place was a silence so profound it felt like a void, an absence that spoke louder than any sound they had ever heard. The mountain, the echo, the monolith, all had been a journey not to a destination but through dimensions of understanding and being. And now, they stood at the summit of both a literal and metaphorical mountain, humbled and exalted, united and alone. Then, one by one, they turned away from the summit and began the descent, carrying within them a secret that was both a revelation and a mystery, a beginning and an end. And as they did, a new sound arose, so faint it could barely be heard, a soft, rhythmic pulse, like a heartbeat, coming from the ground beneath them. But whether it was the planet's heart or their own, none could say. The descent was as transformative as the ascent, but in a different, quieter way. As they climbed down the face of the mountain, both groups found their earlier conflicts and divisions dissolving, replaced by a profound sense of camaraderie and shared purpose. But there was also a tension, an undercurrent of unspoken questions that no one wanted to voice. What had they truly experienced at the summit? What was the nature of the echo? And what did the monolith signify? Back at the colony, the settlers struggled to reconcile the experiences of the summit with their daily lives. The community had changed in their absence. A quiet sense of unease had spread among those who had stayed behind, as if the echo had reached them too, albeit in a less intense form. Some had even begun preparations to abandon the colony, spurred by a vague but potent sense of impending disaster. In a desperate bid to find answers, the research teams huddled over the data, cross-referencing it with the coded languages they had glimpsed during their contact with the monolith. Slowly, a pattern began to emerge, a sequence of equations that defied known laws of physics but that, when input into their simulations, resulted in a model of a quantum resonance field. It was as if the monolith and the mountain had served as a gigantic tuning fork, altering the very frequency of space-time around it. The most startling revelation came when they correlated these findings with deep scans of the planet's crust. Buried beneath the mountain was an object of immense size and complex geometry, seemingly part of the planet yet distinctly separate. The scientists and engineers realized that the echo was not a mere auditory phenomenon but a multi-dimensional vibration emanating from this subterranean entity. The dissenters, too, arrived at a similar understanding, albeit through a different path. Their own inner journeys, catalyzed by the echo and the monolith, had led them to rediscover ancient philosophies and mystical traditions, which they now studied intently. In those texts, they found descriptions of cosmic harmonics and divine geometries that closely matched their own experiences. To them, the subterranean entity was not an object to be studied but a being to be communed with, an ancient intelligence that spoke the language of the soul. However, the most unsettling discovery was yet to come. Both groups came to realize that the frequency of the echo had been gradually increasing ever since their descent from the summit. Calculations and prophecies alike pointed to a moment of singularity, 
a resonance peak where the boundaries between matter and energy, self and other, would dissolve into a symphony of cataclysmic harmony. And that moment was fast approaching. The colony was thrown into a state of heightened urgency, as both the sanctioned expedition and the dissenters shared their findings, each in their own language of science and spirituality. Despite their divergent paths, the conclusion was the same. The Echo's crescendo was leading to an event that could alter not just the colony, but perhaps reality itself. Given the circumstances, past differences between the two groups seemed inconsequential. Teams were assembled, combining the skills and perspectives of both the scientifically minded and the spiritually inclined, to formulate a course of action. After intense debate and consultation, they decided on a two-pronged approach. One team would attempt to create a counter-frequency, using what remained of their most advanced equipment. The idea was to generate a sound wave inversely proportional to the echo, in the hopes of neutralizing its effects. Calculations were made, algorithms written, and machinery hastily assembled. It was a long shot, but it was the best that empirical thinking could offer. The other team prepared for a different kind of journey. Drawing on the texts and experiences that had informed their understanding of the echo, they gathered in a circle around the geometric patterns they had painted on the ground, patterns mirroring those they had seen on the monolith. Closing their eyes, they began to chant, their voices weaving together into a harmonious tapestry of sound, seeking to commune with the consciousness they believed lay beneath the mountain. As the moment of the predicted singularity approached, tension gripped the colony. The scientific team activated their counter-frequency machine, its low hum gradually escalating into a resonant thrum that filled the air. Simultaneously, the spiritual circle reached the crescendo of their chant, their voices joining in a single, sustained note that seemed to resonate with the very fabric of the planet. Then, the unthinkable happened, the echo stopped. In its place, a moment of profound, palpable silence enveloped the colony, as if the planet itself had taken a deep breath. The counter-frequency machine showed flat lines on its monitors, and the chanters felt a wave of peace wash over them, a sense of unity and completion that defied words. The moment passed, and the echo returned, but it was different now, no longer a dissonant jumble of sounds but a soft, melodic hum, like the background music of the universe. Monitors showed that the subterranean entity beneath the mountain had shifted, as if aligning itself into a new configuration. Both teams looked at each other in astonishment, their disbelief mirrored in the faces of their once skeptical peers. Against all odds, they had succeeded, they had communed with the unknown and emerged transformed. The settlers began the process of rebuilding their community, this time with a sense of unity and purpose that transcended previous divisions. Reports were sent back to Earth, though many doubted whether the planet of their origin could ever understand or believe what they had experienced. Yet, what mattered now was the here and now, the lives they would live and the civilization they would build, under the haunting but harmonious melody of the ever-present echo. The hum of the echo remained a constant companion, a reminder of the depths of mystery and wonder that lay both within and beyond them. It was their new normal, a soundtrack to their lives on a planet that was no longer just an inert mass of rock and water, but a living, breathing entity in the symphony of the cosmos. As for the mountain, it stood as it always had, a silent sentinel at the pole, its peak obscured by mists and clouds. But those who looked closely, those who listened with more than just their ears, could swear they saw shapes moving in the mists, and heard notes in the echo that hadn't been there before. Shapes and notes that hinted at a presence, a consciousness, awakening from a long slumber, stretching its limbs, and taking its first, hesitant steps into a world that was now forever changed. Weeks passed since the Echo's transformation, and the settlers focused on harmonizing their society with the newfound resonance of their world. The machinery of the colony hummed in sync with the new melody, and the spiritual practitioners claimed deeper insights into the texts and traditions they revered. All seemed at peace, as if the planet itself had accepted them. However, anomalies started appearing. At first, it was subtle, a bending of light around the machinery that generated the counter-frequency, 
a faint shimmer in the geometric patterns used by the chanters. Then, more conspicuously, the newly planted crops began to sprout overnight, growing at rates that defied biological norms. Even the atmospheric conditions began to alter, the sky seemed to vibrate with colors previously unseen, iridescent hues that danced across the horizon. The research team and the spiritual group were baffled. Re-examining their calculations, theories, and prophetic interpretations, they stumbled upon a startling possibility. The echo wasn't just a phenomenon or a consciousness. It was a code, a cosmic instruction set. By interacting with it, whether through technological means or spiritual practices, they hadn't just changed it, they had activated it. New scans of the mountain revealed another shock. The subterranean entity wasn't just shifting, it was unfolding, expanding in multiple dimensions simultaneously. Data started pouring in, and the implications were staggering. The entity was not of the planet. It was the planet, or at least the seed of what the planet was becoming. As realization dawned, the echo surged to an unprecedented crescendo, its sound enveloping everything, vibrating through soil, air, machinery, and flesh. Then, just as suddenly, it stopped. Silence fell, so profound it felt as if the universe itself had paused to listen. And then they heard it, a new sound, soft yet clear, coming from the direction of the mountain. It wasn't an echo, it was a voice. A voice that spoke a language none had heard but all understood, a primal tongue that bypassed cognition and spoke directly to the soul. It was a wordless message of awakening, of becoming, of transformation into something beyond their wildest dreams or fears. As they stood in awe, the mountain began to dissolve, not into rubble or dust, but into a radiant cloud of iridescent particles that floated upward, merging with the atmosphere, becoming one with the planet and the sky. Before their eyes, the entire landscape started to change. Flora bloomed in surreal colors, rivers changed course, and even the sky seemed to open, revealing vistas of cosmic beauty that defied description. They had not colonized the planet, they had awakened it. They were not its settlers, they were its catalysts. In attempting to understand and adapt to their new home, they had triggered its metamorphosis into a higher state of being, and in doing so, they too were transformed. As they looked at each other, scientists, spiritualists, dissenters, and conformists alike, their eyes met not in disbelief or astonishment, but in recognition. Recognition that the voice they had heard was not just the planet's, but their own, the voice of the unified consciousness, reflected back to them from the mirror of a reality they had forever changed. Then, the real twist unfolded. As their senses expanded, they realized they were not alone. Other entities, planetary consciousnesses, awakened civilizations, cosmic beings, were tuning in, their presence felt like ripples in an endless sea. It turned out the echo was not a singular event but a universal constant, a cosmic chorus in which countless voices sang, each a unique note in a melody beyond space and time. In altering the echo, they had not just affected their own destiny but had added their own voice to the cosmic symphony, announcing their existence to realities beyond imagination. What they had thought was an ending was a beginning, a single step on an endless journey toward unknown horizons.